Can never couch It happens once a week It swallows us for two hours When we try to sleep It forces us to watch a film About which we then speak Can never couch With Brady and Rob Everybody, 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 welcome to another episode of Carnivorous Couch, the film podcast where we do a film a week from two film geeks-ish. And uh, this week we did Unbreakable, the 2000 film by M. Night Shyamalan. And uh, you have me, of course, Rob, I'm talking so you know I'm here. And then you also have... Brady Larson. Oh, yes, he's here as well. And the whole thing is that we're going to do this podcast. And, that is the uh, entirety of it. Yeah, we watched uh, we watched with a few more people, but uh, uh, due to circumstances unforeseen, they could not be here. So it's just it's just your two favoriteest hosts, me and me and Brady. <laughs> I, well, I I could actually foresee that Tess would want to play The Sims instead of talk about Unbreakable. Well, yeah, and also Kyan was going to be here, but he had to work some overtime. Uh, I will probably have him on next week. I'm just like, dude, we'll, uh, we'll get you on one where we do it like all in one day on a weekend. It's a lot easier than, you know, Brady and I worked all day. Both of us are tired. <laughs> I don't think either of us yeah. really are <laughs> super interested in doing this. Uh, no, what? No, well, no. Okay. We're, we're I'm not thrilled. super interested in doing this. I'm making myself fucking produce material for you, our our, our dutiful we're, audience. We're but thrilled. I'm, but I'm fucking tired. <laughs> thrilled. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, should have made some coffee. Um, at any rate, uh, what's up? Uh, this is the podcast about the movie that was aforementioned, which is Unbreakable, the 2000 film by M. Night Shyamalan. Yes, uh, some would say the much diminished M. Night Shyamalan, since uh, this his second movie, the first, the colossal breakout smash uh made all the money and got a surprise best picture nomination as a result right six cents six cents yeah um and you know some might say and by some i mean probably myself uh, a little fallen from grace since then but he he has uh, i hear split is decent some say it's decent the, his new one with uh, James McAvoy. Yeah, I think Kyan was saying that, but I didn't know if he was being jokey about it. Yeah. So, you know. I will take him at his word. I mean, I'll see it. I mean, shit, nah. I'm I'm cool with watching a movie. I'll just, I mean, we were kind of joking about this one, even though it's good. So, you know, fucking, that's what you do. Uh, at any rate, uh, should we go off with the uh, plot synopsis? Yeah. All right, so it starts out... Uh, with an opening scene that's all in one shot. It's really cool. It's like in a mirror, and then it's back at the people, and it's just like, are you sure you didn't drop this baby? Yeah, in a, in a department store, like yeah. back room. Yeah, guys born in a department store, back room. Are you sure you didn't drop this baby? Baby's got both arms and both legs broken. It's fucking horrible. Uh, we cut from that to... Um, I, I think we should mention the baby becomes Samuel L. Jackson. I was going to. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> We cut from that to I mean you don't know this at the at the time. I was just I was illuminating to our audience what's illuminated to us the audience who was watching this movie. Okay. Uh and but y'all had ample time to see it cuz it's been out since 2000 and we told you last week which was actually 3 weeks ago that we were going to watch this next uh and at the end of this we'll do the same. See the whole idea is we tell you and then you watch the next one and then you tune in and hear what we have to say about it and then 
you know, you could tweet us a bunch of shit. You guys don't. Um, I don't know why not, but uh, I expect to hear tweets in the future. At any rate, um, so then we cut to Bruce Willis, who's like hitting on a girl on train, and he takes off his wedding ring. This whole scene is shot from in between seat cushions from the viewpoint of a very small child watching it all go on. Uh, it turns out she kind of shuts him down, and he puts his wedding ring back on because she moves to another seat because he's being a creepo. Uh, the train then crashes, uh, and we cut to a scene where he is the only survivor. Uh, then after that... Um, he goes home. Not just the only survivor, Rob. He's miraculously unharmed. <laughs> Very good. And then we go to, uh, he goes home and she goes like, well, ha-, you know, like the wife's kind of uh, not super stoked. Like normal, obviously they have problems with their marriage because she wasn't super stoked. Uh, I mean, she was relieved that he lived, but I mean, it was kind of, it, it's a weird situation. You're the only person alive. You're walking out amongst the family members of everybody else who's died and blah, blah, blah. Um, then there's the whole thing with the kids. It's illuminated to us through this scene that, you know, they're having trouble. He's sleeping in a different room, blah, blah, blah. She asked how the job went in New York. He said, I don't think I'll get it. Um, then we cut to childhood of the baby that was bro- uh, born with broken arms and legs. And it's Samuel Jackson. He is just incredibly prone well he's not samuel jackson yet he's a kid but uh he will eventually become samuel jackson and he's prone to like breaking his arms and legs and just his bones are super brittle he doesn't want to go outside his mom is baiting him with going outside by putting a present across the street of a comic book and she said about many more every time you go outside there'll be one wait for you You gotta go outside you gotta face the world you can't just like fucking go like i'm uh mr glass so therefore i will not he has like some kind of osteoporosis it's distinct from Joe Pesci's disease where you break other people's arms and legs. Rat-a-tat-tat. Say hello to my big fat bat. Uh, he's got a cane that will break, you know, if he drops it. Um, <laughs> at any rate, uh, then we go from there to Bruce Willis. Uh, he's, uh, he gets a card uh, during the memorial service for all the people who died in the train that says, like, how many days have you been sick in the past whatever and, like, he thinks about it, and then he asks his boss, he's like, how many days have I been sick? The boss goes, like, I get it. You want to raise. You've never been sick. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, then he goes and sees the guy, and they start talking about him, and he's just like, he's like uh, I think you might be, like, one of those totally strong dudes. And he's like, well, I had a, a kid's like, oh, he had an accident, and he couldn't play football anymore. He's like, that's hole number one. Oh, and let's mention, did we mention what Samuel L. does for a living? Oh, yes, he's a, a comic book art dealer. And so they go meet him there. At, like, he's already, like, getting pissed off at some dude because he's going to buy, like, a piece of art for his four-year-old. And he's like, this is not a child's toy, despite the fact not that... Not some little be- cartoon, man. And uh, in that scene with Bruce Willis, he gives an impassioned soliloquy about uh, how comics are, are not just cartoons. They're, they're a callback to our days of drawing on walls when we used visual symbols to yeah. communicate They're an exaggeration other. of a truth. Um, and they th- he thinks that he might be this super strong dude, but the kid illuminates, his son, the kid, uh, illuminates that, dude, he was hurt, he couldn't play football anymore, and blah, blah, blah. As time goes on in the film, uh, we we realize that this was, uh, his, his wife didn't want to kind of be with a lughead, like, football player who's in, engaged in violence, so he maybe kind of said he was hurt and couldn't play football anymore. Yeah, because they got into a, a terrible accident on an icy road. Yes, they got into a car accident, 
he was unhurt, but he said he was hurt so that he couldn't play football anymore because she's a rebuilder of people who are broken, physical therapist sort of uh, thing. And she's just like, I couldn't really get behind living the rest of my life with somebody who plays football when I kind of do the opposite, which is put people back together after they play football. So um, then we get the whole thing where like his son becomes to believe Elijah's ideas and so forth and so on. Um, and, uh, is kind of like, I think you might be a superhero dad. And then I'm skipping ahead and I'm flying through this You get to the point where, uh, he's lifting weights and the kid, he goes like, Oh, that was the most I ever lifted. And he's like, why don't you take some weight off son? And then the son puts on more and then he lifts. He's like, how much do you take off? Cause that's still hard. And he's like, I put more on. And then they put more and more on some paint cans on. They realize that he can just lift like a motherfucker. Like like crazy uh you want to take it from here brady yeah uh skating through the first half of the movie yeah so you know and around this time this whole time the relationship between samuel l jackson's elijah uh a lot do do we remember what his last name is glass no (laughs) but that very important thing is kids uh, hello kids i'm elijah glass sometimes there's comic books and they in life. call me Mr. Glass we thought it was your name yeah, so I was gonna do Ira Glass but Elijah <laughs> sometimes there's comic books in life sometimes it illuminates truth about things that are here in this world that are maybe also true in the fantasy world next on Unbreakable <laughs> so uh, so yeah but their relationship is kind of deepening and you know in their first meeting what what uh, Elijah is interested in is well Wait, in comic books, like since he believes that comic books are an exaggeration of real life, he says, well, okay, you've always got the hero and a villain who's kind of a physical opposite to him. So if in real life I have this osteoporosis disease, then wouldn't it stand to reason that there's someone with like super strength in a realistic human form, uh, someone who basically can't be hurt? And so since I'm into comics and my life has been defined by this weakness, I'm interested in finding maybe what could be a real superhero. And at this point he says, oh, but I have been hurt. I fell in a pool. I was forced to yeah, have some friends. I inhaled his, some water. Yeah, his son gets in a and fight. And I was sick And the principal is like, or uh, the nurse probably, yeah, the nurse, of course, is like, oh, don't you remember me when you were a kid? He's like, I don't. It's like, yeah, you. we changed the rules of pool safety. You basically died. You were at the bottom of a pool for five minutes. And it's like, oh, shit, okay. So I do have a weakness. So, like, this this isn't even true. Like, never mind the fact that I made up being injured. I almost died from water. Uh, so that seems to kind of put an, an end to it. But not to Joseph, his son, because in the very next scene, he Hold pulls on. out a gun. Yes. And uh, it, it should be said, it's been said in uh, many a previous episode, that this is a spoiler-full podcast. And... This is also going to be a spoiler-full podcast, and so we'd spoiled much of the movie, but not all of it does so far, but you should have watched it because we told you last time we were going to watch this movie. It's true. The next scene, he pulls out a, a gun, gun! Which uh, was next on Unbreakable. Chekhov uh, earlier in the film. We saw that he stores a gun up in his attic crawlspace thing, uh, and Joseph... Is like, I'm going to prove it to you. Like, no one believes him. And the mother's like, no, I, I don't like Elijah. He's crazy. And he's like, the son's like, no, oh, no one believes him. Like, you'll see. I'll be okay. And Bruce Willis basically talks his way out of the situation by being like, fine, maybe I am invincible. But if you shoot me, I'm going to be so pissed off that I'm going to move to New York like I've threatened to do and not be with you and your mother anymore. 
And so that diffuses the very tense situation. Yes, and before we do this, we should also rewind and go back to, there was a point where Elijah shows up at the football game that he's doing security for and thinks, and he goes like, uh, he picks out a guy in the crowd and goes like, start searching people because I think this guy's got some stuff. And then he goes like, oh, what'd you see? Oh, I saw a silver gun with a, a waistband or like tucked into his waistband. A silver gun with a black hand grip t- tucked into his waistband. And Mr. Glass, Elijah Glass, Guys and follows him down, <laughs> down the uh, stairwell in, in the um, subway, and uh, falls and hurts himself. And he does see behind his waistband a silver gun with a black hand grip. After this, Elijah is hospitalized and goes to start to see Bruce Willis's wife for a physical therapy appointment. And that is when he divulges his theory to her. This all happens before the gun scene. Going forward, uh, the next day, Bruce Willis. Here, wait. Let's call it David Dunn is his real name. David Dunn. David Dunn. David Dunn. Um, very superhero-y sounding name. David Dunn uh, goes to Elijah's gallery and is like, "Okay, look, I just learned I almost drowned as a kid. So, like, this whole me being invincible is bullshit. By the way, because of you, my kid almost shot me." So you just got to stay away from me, man. Like, that's it. That's it. At this point, David Dunn tells Elijah Glass, me, to stay away from him and his family. Will I listen? No. Um, no. And so then uh, the next, that very night, David goes on a date with his wife because they're kind of trying to patch things together. And the wife's like, you know what? It's a really big deal that you survived. So, like, maybe ask me out on a date sometime. This I'm may Robin have also Wright happened Penn. previously. Or in the future. <laughs> and while they're on their date, kind of kind of talking about the past, uh, Elijah is probably drunk in a comic book shop, now relegated to a wheelchair. And the comic book guy is like, hey, bro, it's closing time. Like, you better pick a comic book. And Elijah's just, like, mean-mugging him and just like, fuck it. I'm so done with life right now. Like, I'm despondent. Yeah, fuck this dude. Fuck everything. The guy tries to wheel him out of the shop, and uh, he keeps wheeling his wheelchair into comic book stands, knocking them over, and the comic book shop guy's like, I don't have any time for your childish not acknowledging of my despondence. (laughs) That was Um, my best Samuel Jackson. But uh, in the process of knocking some shit over, uh, a comic book falls into his lap that seems to really pique his interest, and he says, oh, I'll take this comic book, please. So... When David gets back from his date, he finds out he got the job in New York, which throws his relationship with his wife into some jeopardy. Like, oh, well, what do I do now? Uh, but he also gets an answering machine message from Elijah that's basically telling him, like, oh, I just realized, like, I picked up a comic book where all these villains try to figure out the weaknesses of superheroes. So, duh, like, superheroes do have weaknesses in comic books, and yours has to be water. It's like the one thing that connects us, because water hurts me too. It hurts both of us. So pick up the phone, motherfucker. And David Dunn goes for some soul searching. He goes to where the uh, the train, the crash train, is being stored at the train lot. And he, he reminisces about the night of his accident as a young man with his wife in the car. And we get this flashback where he, he rips open an iron car door to save her. And her leg is broken, and a motorist stops to be like, are you okay? And it's there he remembers he had his moment of truth. 
Like, okay, at this point, I can lie to save my relationship. I can either be a superhero or I can put love first. So at that moment, he put love first. And having this revelation, he calls Elijah up. He's like, okay, no more lies. I, I am this person. What do you want me to do? And Elijah says, okay, uh, you get like these intuition flashes. Go to a place flashes. where people are. Go to a place where people are. He goes to like Grand Central Station or whatever the Philadelphia equivalent of that is. This is in Philadelphia. And he stands and he very kind of messianically, Jesus-like, puts both hands out and lets the people passing by go into their trains, brush into the hands. And every now and then he gets a flash and he's able to see some terrible wrong that person's done. Right. So he sees a woman who's robbed a jewelry store. He sees a racist he who sees, throws a bottle at a black woman's head. He sees a... Uh, a he also sees... Super date rapist. He also sees a super date rapist. No, not date rapist. Party rapist. He sees a party rapist. Um, and he finally sees a, a very chilling, like, psychopathic home invader who murdered uh, a mother and father and has kidnapped their two children, kept them uh, bound up in the home. The father is definitely dead. Uh, The The mother may not be. The mother may not be. The Um, children are still in the house. It turns out is a a janitor at the train station, and so David follows him home when he goes home at night. Uh, He follows him not to his house, but the home invasion site, and he goes in and he sees there's been a forcible entry, and he's looking through the rooms, and finally... He finds two young ladies. He finds the children and then binds them. Bound up in the bathroom and he unties them. And then he goes into the bedroom and sees an unconscious mother. We don't know if she's dead or alive yet. And he goes out onto the balcony. Where did this man in the orange jumpsuit go? The man in the orange jumpsuit comes out of the closet, comes out of the room. Knocks him over the balcony. Knocks him over the balcony into the pool. Onto the pool cover. Which has a pool cover on it. And the pool cover starts to slip into the water, wrapping David up inside of it. And now, David's thinking this is a very bad situation to be in. It's water very bad is to my be weakness. in water and also wrapped in a pool cover. <laughs> it's not a good pool place to be. Pool covers are also a weakness. It makes it very difficult to swim. And it looks like David might drown, uh, but all of a sudden, uh, you know, a handle a of pool a pool scoop. brush. Pool brush handle emerges through the water. The, the surface looking similar to the glass cane held by Elijah Glass. And he grabs onto it and gets pulled up onto the surface of the pool. And by who the is two it? Children. The children. It's the children. And the music swells as he stands up, and we only see his caped bottom half standing in, in true superhero children. form. And the music goes. Anyway, David then, then goes back upstairs. He goes back upstairs. He guillotines the very bad man in the orange jumpsuit. Well, it's and chokes him. <laughs> it's, it's a type of <laughs> choke. <laughs> Sorry. He turns this from the guillotine into a rear naked choke. It's a poor one of movie. The type man class. tries to slam him. He into doesn't the grab wall. his own bicep. He's not quite pushing on the carotid artery. But in time, David Dunn prevails. He kills that man. Um, but it does turn out that the mother is dead. So, life has been saved. Life has been saved. More could But not have all been. of it. Not all of it. The a next morning learned. at breakfast, David Dunn... Oh, no, no. But I like this thing. <laughs> he, he carries his wife up to bed. Because uh, hearkening back to a conversation on their date, the first time they had marital problems was when he didn't wake her up from a nightmare. And so then he takes her up to the bed. 
shares a bed with her for the first time in probably a year or more. David Dunn takes her up to the bed, shares a bed for the first time. And he's like, and almost I had a nightmare. And she's like, it's okay. He tells her about the nightmare. Well, the nightmare is like his existence, though. As She breathes a sigh of relief. Um, and so it's the, looking as if their relationship might finally be healed. <laughs> correct. Uh, the next morning at breakfast, uh, his son comes down. His son's still sad because the last thing that happened to the son was he tried to shoot his father, and his father is like, fuck you. And so he's like, no one believes There's a bit me. of tension in the room over orange juice. Over half orange full. juice. Or half, half full or half empty. Could be half empty. The you son know. doesn't know yet. <laughs> this is a symbolic glass of juice, Dad. It's very orange, very much like the jumpsuit that the murderer <laughs> that he killed was wearing before. And David slides the local Philadelphia news rag over to his son. Let me take this one. David slides the local Philadelphia news rag over to his son, gives him a knowing nod, and puts his finger up to his lips as if to be quiet to his mother. But nods. No what does the paper say? The paper shows the <laughs> hero in quotes that he is seriously a hero. Go on, Brady. <laughs> and the son's dewy eyes fill with tears, and he shakes his head that he won't tell the mother. And then we go to our final scene at Elijah's big gallery uh, event, and he's you know selling off a bunch of these fine framed comic prints and Elijah Glass seems to be doing very well for himself (laughs) this movie makes so much less sense if his name is Elijah Glass the kids because of the kids David they called me Elijah (laughs) (laughs) okay any rate, I'll let you finish up. I'm stuck. I'm just like enamored by my my uh, my Ira Glass impression. That's very good. But now you can't do it for understudy. Not this time. <laughs> um, and so Elijah's mother, who we've seen a couple times in flashback, who was Elijah's biggest champion growing up, she's the one who got him to finally get out into the world. And she talks to David, and they have a conversation. And she knows a lot about comics herself. She's explaining how the villains have uh, bigger eyes to suggest a skewed perspective on the world. And they start talking about David and, or not David, Elijah. And David's like, yeah, and me and Elijah are starting to become friends. And like, it's great. And so she's like, I'll go get him for you. And David follows Elijah into his back office. And Elijah's like, so the sadness, like you've been feeling sadness for a while. Is it gone this morning? He's like, yeah, it is. He's like, well, then let's shake hands over that. And he shakes his hand and flash! Flash! And boom and smash! He gets he gets uh, flashes of three acts of terrorism, a plane crash, a hotel fire, and David's very own train crash, all perpetrated by Elijah. It's at this point in time that Elijah Glass illuminates to him that he needed to know his purpose in the world. And that without knowing his purpose in the world, he could not rest easy knowing this illness that he had. He explains. All this sacrifice to find you. All these people must be sacrificed in order for me to find my own living. And maybe this is a thing that Elijah feels as a relative of mine. I'm sympathetic. (laughs) But so horrible. Now that we know who you are, I know who I am. I'm not a mistake! 
I'm not a mistake. And and his last words are, do you know how I should have known, David, that I was a supervillain? Because of the kids. They called me Mr. Glass. Plunging 24 minutes into this podcast, Brady now realizes he must think of a voice for the upcoming understudy. I found one. But before we do that, we must do. Brady, how did you like this movie uh, uh, upon rewatching it 17 years after it came out? You know, the thing is, like, I know this movie really well. Um, I didn't think I did, but, like, after rewatching it, I was like, yeah. <laughs> I remember all this. And, and uh, I like it a lot. I, I, I even love it. Like, uh, and, you know, we can talk about certain Shyamalan ticks that were never his strongest suits. And it is weird to, like, uh, there are examples of things like this where a filmmaker eventually becomes a parody of themselves. And when you go back to see like their really great masterful work, you can still kind of see seeds of how that would go wrong. And so here's an example. Shyamalan, uh, with some exceptions. Is that the proper way to pronounce it? I've never known. Shyamalan? Uh, Shyamalan. Shyamalan? No one knows. It's It's just going to change so that he can have something over you. It's Shyamalan. (laughs) Uh, I'm pretty sure. Uh, so like the cans or con? It's con. Um, with it's French. It's It'll silent. change in five years somewhere. <laughs> That's why I've never gone to see Less Miserables. <laughs> um, so, but like with some exceptions, because there actually were some moments that made me chuckle. But Shyamalan is not good at jokes, but he's a writer with a very sure ego, uh, so that doesn't stop him from writing jokes. And when he does this, like, you can tell, like, the voice of someone who thinks he's really clever and is clever in some ways in this movie, but not in that way. Uh, he's not a humorist. Yeah, definitely not in the Kevin Smith way. He, uh, sure. Kevin Smith thinks he's clever, but a, half the time he is. <laughs> um, so, so, like, some of that stuff is there. Like, when the comic book guy is like, hey, man, I got to get some chicken in me. I can just hear Shyamalan, like, this is funny. We got to have this. It's like, no, nah, your movie's really serious. Like, know what your movie is. Uh, it's, you know, it's not a, a laugh fest. That's just not his register. Ever. Um, Ever. You hear me, Shyamalan? <laughs> <laughs> Never do that again. No, no, but the, the joke about the credit card, I did kind of chuckle at. Um, but, but you know what? Like, all that is aside, because, like, that's just, it's glimpses of where he would have problems in the future. But the overall meat of this is really, really good. And scene to scene, it's a lot of really great scenes that genuinely add things. And so, like, what Shyamalan was really great at back in the day, and hopefully, God willing, knock Sometime on something, in the future, yeah. will be good at again, is he's good at the story drip. And and that's how you write a lot of great stories, is where, like, just you're never done getting new information. And so, like, midway, more than midway through the movie, you get that great scene with the nurse and the pool story. Yeah. And, and there's al- lots of stuff like that. And also another tactic that I think that he was good at, at least in the beginning, is, like, uh, you know, uh, information in the beginning that pays off in the end. It's a detail. Yeah. You're not sure that it, it's significant. It's just a mood setter. Oh, but no, it kind of pays off. And it makes sense that that was even said in the first place. Yeah. And so, and it's... Uh, it's a real you Hitchcockian know, sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, in a, in its own way, I think it's thematically tight. Uh, I think we talked about and we'll talk about more. It's the kind of 
uh, precursor to like the like I hate this term, but fine, let's say it the gritty superhero movie. Uh, but more than that, it's a precursor to like the really great serious superhero movies that like really tried to do it seriously, like The Dark Knight. You know, movies like that. And, and this is that. It's because it, it's asking the question and it asks it explicitly, overtly. Uh, you know, what if all this superhero stuff is really an exaggeration of just things that happen in real life? And so I think that's cool. It was ahead of the game in saying that. And it's just, yeah, it's an engaging movie with probably could be Bruce Willis's best performance. Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to give it the A. It's a flawed A, but I, uh, I think it really holds up. Yeah, I mean, I really like this movie. It's it's very interesting to watch now, especially since it was made in 2000, which, you know, is prior to the heyday of, of you know, every single summer there being three, four superhero movies coming out. And, like, there's there's a weird a dichotomy. It's not a bad one, um, but there's a weird contrast to the way that this movie is filmed. It's like, this is shot like a comic book. And it's totally different than the way the movies that are shot like comic books now are shot like comic books. And it's actually uh, refreshing to kind of see this, you know, this sort of, oh, we're going to frame this, we're going to pull focus here. And and it's um, strikingly not digital, which, I mean, for me is a big plus. It, there's a lot of just analog effects. It's like, oh, man, like the window, like what's outside of the window is out of uh, picture when it's over his shoulder and his mom's given the comic book and then they have to pull focus a long ass way <laughs> they have to change that you know and in digital would all be in focus and it would just like go through the window and just down to the bench and right. like nowadays that's the way they do it i'm just like i kind of really liked the you know and uh for instance the scenes i'm sure they did some filters and and stuff like that but the scenes where you know the bad guys uh was wearing orange and the woman in the red dress and the green guy was the rapist and blah 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 but they really just had people walking around in mostly gray and muted tones and then these people wearing very bright colors and it was like a nice refreshing thing to rewatch and go like oh yeah back when we used to do things analogly and through set design and you know very much like the matrix of the same era was you know it's all muted green set in order to make everything ma- make uh, muted green they did do some filtering on that as well but i mean like you know keanu reeves was wearing an off greenish suit to you know it it it, it, it uh, speaks of something that we've kind of lost where you can just immediately create a digital effect for all this stuff anywhere. Uh, so that was something I really liked. Uh, every shot was all, like, every scene had an interesting shot in it. Um, it was always aiming for that. Uh, it was excellent storytelling. Like Brady said, the drip of information, the way it was kind of exposed was very well done. Um, and it's kind of unfortunate that that eventually did pigeonhole uh, Shyamalan into... You know, I have to do that, and I have to have the Swiss ending every time, and you know, kind, and I have to write it and produce and direct it all by myself every time. It's like, dude, only one person has so many ideas. Let somebody else write a script for you, <laughs> like. Um, but no, really good. Uh, really liked it. It did date itself, but like I said, it's only because of the contrast between the sort of uh, comic book movies that are made nowadays and this being one that was made in, in a genre that didn't quite yet exist. Um, so I'm gonna give it the B plus. I don't think it's quite an A, but but it's very good, very good. Good, good. So that's how we liked it. Let's run away and do understudy. Okay. 
I don't know if I'm going to be able okay. to pull off my voice, but I'm going to start. I'm going to do the first the first line, and then you do the other ones. Does that work for you? Yeah. We're so sorry we couldn't get the actors to do the scene from this screenplay, but we've got two understudies, and to be honest, they're probably more famous anyway. So try to catch the actors, try to guess the movies, tweet us at C-A-R-N-Y couch. This game called understudy is happening, happening, happening right now. Toby. No, you can't have any of my White Castle hamburgers, so please don't even ask. Can I have a fry? Okay, but just a couple, Harvey. I'm not going to eat dinner until very late, and this has got to hold me over. What do you got, uh, a church function? No, I'm driving to Toledo to see a movie. Would you like to come? Nah, I gotta, I gotta fly to Delaware tonight. I'm getting started. Married. 53. Oh, why Delaware? The chick I'm marrying is from Wilmington. Plus, I gotta, I gotta help her move her stuff here. Why are you driving to Toledo to see a movie? It's not playing at the Mapleton. I didn't know you had a girlfriend. Yeah, we met last week. Toby, uh, what movie could possibly worth be driving to... 260 miles round trip for. It's a new film called Revenge of the Nerds. It's about a group of nerd college students who are being picked on all the time by the jocks, so they decide to take revenge. I already saw it once. <laughs> you, you really dig this movie. I like it a lot, Harvey. What are these nerds like? How, how would you describe them? Hmm. Nerds are smart, but they look and act differently than other people. Like nerds might wear polyester button-down shirts and flood pants where their ankles and their socks are showing. So, what years? Oh. Ah. So what you're saying is you identify with these nerds. Yes, I consider myself a nerd, and this movie has uplifted me. There's this one scene where a nerd grabs the microphone during a pep rally and announces that he is a nerd and that he is proud of it and stands up for the rights of other nerds. Then he asks the kids at the pep rally who think they're nerds to come forward. So nearly everyone in the place does. That's the way the movie ends. (laughs) So the nerds won, eh? Yes. Wow. You got this movie and I'm getting hitched. You both had a good month, huh? Right. Harvey, how long are you going to be in Delaware? Because I would really like to see this movie with you. I'm only going for a week, but then I'll have a wife, so <laughs> I'll have to take her along. Is it a is it a girl flick? Depends on the girl. What kind of girl is your new bride? Is she a nerd? I don't know, man. Maybe... Maybe she's into herbal teas. Well, I hope that the traffic isn't murder. That was undecided. Tweet us your answer at C-A-R-N-Y-Couch.
Hey, thanks everybody. That was a fun round of understudy. Uh, once again, like the song says, but in case you can't understand my muffled, muffled, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, you're supposed to, we did two voices that are not from that movie. You're supposed to guess what voices we might be doing. I gave a little hint in there because I'm bad at voices. And uh, you're um, also supposed to guess what movie we did the scene from. Tweet us at Carney Couch and we'll do a movie of your choosing for our podcast. You could totally screw us with that or you could have us talk about something you'd like to hear an opinion on. Uh, go ahead and do that. Soon. Soon. So pretty, uh. What's it all about? Whoa, whoa, whoa. What's it all about? What's it all about? Um, I think it's all about comics. Uh, <laughs> which is, uh, is cool. Uh, this is the kind of movie... That maybe the miracle of this movie is that it's so overtly about what it's about. Like, Because that's Shyamalan's style. He's not going to be super subtle with you. That's just... It's not his thing. He wants you to know from, from even before the point of Elijah's speech, you know, the first time we see a comic is when his mother gives it to him as a little boy. So we're already getting kind of like this idea of comics. And then in the very next scene, Elijah gives his big speech about how comic books aren't just comic books. They're a form, a new form of the kind of fireside oral tradition. Mythology. Yeah. Passing down, passing down uh, stories about who we are through these larger than life kind of tales and figures. And, you know, that could be a visual thing like a cave painting or it could be like a, a King Arthur legend. But it's so it's about how it kind of, you know, it is the seed of the psychologically rich superhero movie. So its theme is that, you know, the things that take place in superhero tales in comics resonate with us because they are larger than life reflections of what takes place in the real world. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, a very much about, uh, yeah, I mean, it's comics, but it's about its own visual style. It's about uh, cohesiveness. It's about framing. It, I mean, it's there are frames within frames in many shots. We go through windows. We, go, we look at TVs on, you know, so, you know, a, a film is already framed, and uh, nobody can see this, but I'm doing a, a framing motion with my hands. Um, but... So, it's about perspective. It's about framing. There are very a lot of color motifs. Mr. Glass himself has a purple motif. Um, Mr. Security Man, David Dunn, kind of has like... He, he kind of has an everyman motif in which he, he blends back into the dark metered right. backgrounds, right? But, but he very notably wears what looks... Well, it's a rain slick, right? It's a poncho, but it looks like a cape. Yeah, it looks like a like a Batman outfit or something like that, where you know he's covered in a hooded thing to protect him from the water, protect him from the world, protect him from the outside, and he very much kind of floats through this. Um, in addition to that, like um, the things that stand out are usually the bad things in life, uh, the the colors. Uh, everything's fairly muted, but um, you have this sort of I guess illumination. Whenever, whenever things are becoming known, that's when you see these bright colors, like in contrast to the muted background of the "Oh, I'm, I'm a hero, but I'm unknown," and it's you know, the uh, the villains when they come out in their colors: the green rapists, the orange uh, psychopath, the red uh, klepto, um, and the yellow just, racist. Yeah, the yellow racist, and to the some worst e- lucky charms <laughs> ever. <laughs> and to some extent, the the purple. Uh, you know, uh, anti-hero villain, 
you know, the right. uh, the person who, you know, he drives the story, basically. Uh, there wouldn't be a story without Elijah. David Dunn would never come to find out who he is um, if, you know, this purple man wasn't. And, you know, there's an interesting pick uh, for this, like the most violent psychopath is orange. And it looks like an orange jumpsuit from prison. Uh, the the klepto is like a lady in red, like a, like a, a man eater, sort of like you know, uh, wants the gold, you know, there's, uh, this purpleness of this breakable man who's always bruised in black and black and blue, you know, like these sort of various different color motifs of evil aren't necessarily, well, I mean, the orange guy is definitely evil, but I mean, uh, it speaks, I mean, I don't really have a very cohesive point on this, but I think there's something there. And I think, I think what it is, is just, you know, just the idea of various different negative feelings that people have, negative traits that people have and and flaws that we have as humans uh, can be personified in color very much that stands out from the gray mutedness of everybody conforming kind of to their fit into this sort of environment. I see. There's well, a lot of aboutness of that. This is about a lot is, of that. There's even a conversation where the wife gives herself a color, but a very muted one because she's not a hero or a bad guy. Right. She's like, my favorite color is still brown. Right. <laughs> she's got brown hair, and I like it. I, brown brown was, rain. Brown's pretty. She was muddy when he pulled her out of the car. I'm I'm guessing. And then David, of course, is just a hooded figure. So he's he's just a hooded. He's the hooded man. He's a hooded man who has a mundane job and this and that. I mean, there's also the thing where, like, the guy's wearing, quote-unquote, a camouflage jacket. It's not It's not an army camo jacket. They keep describing it that way, but the actual costume is not that. It looks more like uh, <laughs> uh, Gary Sinise's suit from Snake Eyes. But... <laughs> yeah, and then even Chayamalan is in blue, even though he doesn't get caught, but... Um, but presumably he is a drug dealer. I can't articulate it very well, but I think there's a thing with colors and uh, flaws of human beings and standing up out from the crowd in those ways. Yeah, maybe. Or it could just be like, I, I feel like it fits into the movie's thing of it's just like, yeah, like this is visual representation. Pictures are ways of kind of making simpler and more bold like feelings we have. So, you know, in a comic book, you could almost see like this is, David fights the orange man. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of stuff that he does with um, perspective where, you know, everything's framed so that that opening shot of David Dunn hitting on the woman on the train is, like, framed in between the seat cushions and then we get the, the reverse shot and it's a child watching it. It's always from the perspective of somebody. And it's the interesting thing about these frames and these shots is, like, you know, even if uh, they don't turn the camera around and go like, oh, yeah, there's somebody in the closet when he's getting a gun up there. There's it does have the effect of making you feel always watched. And I don't know if it's necessarily a character in the movie, but it's always someone, if not the audience itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, I feel like it's just um, I, I feel like everything in this is in service to feeling like a comic book. And I think it's in terms of like actually looking like a comic book, I think it might be the best ever made. In terms of like its focus on iconography is very very strong. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason that I 
occasionally revisit this movie is is because when I'm thinking about film and I'm thinking about writing film or something like that, it's something I'd love to do someday. Um, if my life is ever not super busy, um, that you know, there's a thing we studied in film school, which is like. Howard Bazin's The Transcendental Subject, which is, you know, the camera is this frame and it's showing you your eyes in in the world. And this movie is a movie that definitely does a lot of that. Like, um, if there isn't a character um, doing the actual shot, there's a lot of shots from above. It's like the audience looking down on the scene, looking down on, on the people. This sort of, like, view from above. Like, you are looking at the overview of this whole mess that's going on you know yeah it's like where are we the audience which shots are us you know we're uh, flipping the pages there's a lot to be thought of in that that particular concept with the way this film is shot yeah or i'm just a blowhard who's just talking to hear himself talk you know one of the two no no, no. it's uh it's a good theory i mean I, my personal feeling is it's we're the reader we are the reader of this comic book Judging everybody on the page. Yeah, there's because they, they uh, one good example, and I really like this shot is it's right before he works out, and his son is gonna play a football game with his friends, but uh, this you know player who's about to go into the NFL is kind of mentoring them and playing around with them, and it's all these kids and this giant football player in the foreground, and David and his son are way way off at the street corner, like way way off. And so I, I've seen comics panels like this where there's just like the distant figures are the ones talking. Right. Uh, so yeah, just cool stuff like that. Very cool, very cool. Uh, should we go do Metacritical? Yeah. Ah, uh, baby. Metacritical. Rob's never gonna win. Metacritical. Brady's the victor again. Ooh-hoo. So it's time to play. Ooh-hoo. I'm gonna lose today. Go paper and pen. Metacritical, yeah, it's time, time to play. All right. Well, I'm just gonna roll with the comic books, and uh, we'll start with the first one, which will be the. Uh, well, actually, let's do one that maybe people don't think about that much. I actually enjoyed this film. Uh, it's not the one that most people would think of uh, in terms of the franchise, but I'm going to go with The Amazing Spider-Man. Oh, okay. The one that came out a couple, the couple years, like 2012, 2011, Andrew Garfield. Yeah. So uh, what do you think the, the thing is, Brady, um, on that, the score? I think it's like a 63, I want to say. 63, that's pretty low. Um, I'm going to try and get some points on you. It's say 72. I enjoyed it fairly well, too. I um, I mean, I enjoy yeah, Andrew A lot Garfield. of people talk shit about it, but I mean, I was like, oh, it wasn't bad Spider-Man. Like, it was just different than the Tobey Maguire one. Like, I get that it's kind of repetitive to the first, but Garfield's so good. Garfield's a better actor than Tobey Maguire, so it's like that part is kind of a trade-up. Ooh, you were closer. 66. I was off by 6. You were off by 3. Not too bad. Not too bad. You want to do the second one, Brady? 
Sure. You go off superhero movies or you go off Andrew Garfield. Who was the uh, female lead in this? Uh, it was Emma Stone. Emma Stone. Or you go off Emma Stone. You could go off Emma Stone. All right, let's go uh, Emma Stone to Superbad. Superbad. Superbad's a good movie. Yeah. 88. 88. What do you think? I also think Superbad is a really good movie, but I'm going to go lower just because... Um, those movies have a hard time. Really? How low are you going to go? How low? Uh, I'm huh? going to go 70, huh? 78. 70. 78. Yeah, that's what I said. I said, I said 78. 76. Okay. You motherfucker. You know Metacritic too well. We, we got to do Rotten Tomatoes sometime. You won't know any of the things and you'll be like, these scores are bullshit. And I'll be like, I don't care. They help me win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, I'll I'll um I'll do one that we've done on this podcast, which you might not have looked up on uh, Metacritic, uh, that I feel is kind of relative to Super Bad, which is Project X. <laughs> 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 Wait, who goes first? Uh, you do. I'm I'm gonna go like a a forty-two. I'll go a sixty. Come on, Todd Phillips. Tell me you have some pull with the critics. You don't. 48. Okay. Off by 12, 6 to Brady. You know, I'm not doing horrible, but Brady's just doing better. What are we What are we on? Is that three? That's three movies? That's three. I'm down by like 32. What do you do? Another Todd Phillips? Uh, or you go... It's, it's your choice on the Oh, movie. I do. All right. That's the easiest way. Let's just go Starsky and Hutch. Starsky and Hutch. Oof. Shit, I got to guess first on this one. I don't know anything about this. Uh, is that Stiller? Uh, yeah, Stiller and Owen Wilson. Stiller and Owen Wilson. They do like those guys, uh, but I don't think this movie was very good. Um, I didn't see it, so I don't know. I'm going to go 64. That's actually a pretty good guess. Yeah, I think so. Why don't you guess far away from me so you lose a lot of points? <laughs> <laughs> That would be out of character because I think it's a good guess. Um, I'm going to go 60. 55. Shit, so, wait, what did I say, 64? Mm-hmm. God damn it. <laughs> Not doing, okay, so I got I got to make this, okay. Um, we did Project X right before we did Skarsky and Hutch, uh, which is also another movie from the 80s. Uh, about I think monkeys flying planes or something but I, on, on the risk that this is not even in Metacritic I'm going to go with something else that my brain does with this <laughs> it's just going to be what's about totally monkeys? Different. I don't um, Project X something with oh okay. um, but at any rate I, I'm going to go with Operation Dumbo Drop wow I mean that's it's in the 90s it's so. probably not going to be in Metacritic Okay, but, okay. but there might be a chance that I can make up a fuck ton of points on this one. <laughs> this is why I'm picking it. There might be. <laughs> All right, what do you think Operation Dumbo Drop with Bill Murray? And uh, I think uh, it's Matthew Broderick? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I think <laughs> I'm going to go like a 47. Shit. Okay, it's either in the 20s or the 80s. I'm going to go 80. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to have it. It's I know. They're not going to have it. Uh, 
No search results found. Outrageous. Yeah, bummer. So what do you do now? Now you get to pick one. Oh. And who's in it? Bill Murray? I don't know. You could go off of... (laughs) You could not be totally random and crazy like me uh, Uh, and just follow the the thread. (laughs) I was just hoping to get something that would either be incredibly low or incredibly high unexpectedly and you wouldn't know. (laughs) What movie has an elephant in it? No, you don't have to do that. You can just go... What was the one before that? With Starsky and Hutch. You could go from Stiller or something. How about the remake of... uh, What's it called? The other duo people driving cars, agents people, uh, 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 with the the Confederate flag on the hood. Oh God, Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> yeah, fine. All right, Dukes of Hazard. What do you think, Dukes of Hazard? Wait, actually, no, I get to guess. Okay. Right. Yeah. You guessed first last time. Yes. Yeah. Dukes of Hazard. Dukes of Hazard. Thirty-seven. Uh. <laughs> do you know it's not? 28. A conservative guess, you win no matter what. I mean, it is that bad. Right. But, I mean, you'd win, like, even if it was, like, a 90. You need an extra Z. Hazard. I also need to pluralize the duke. 33. What'd you guess? I guessed 28. And I guessed 47? 37. 37. So you actually got one point closer on that one. Yay. Yeah. Yay. All right. I'll let you do your quick math, but I'll interrupt you with some bullshit. Bing, bam, boom. A Metacritical. I won again. Fuck you. History. You you got a forty three. I got a twenty one. Shit. Well, we lost by twenty two points. Forty three is not a terrible score. No, it's not. You're just always really good at it. Uh, Some of me thinks you look at Metacritic quite often. Well, it's been a while since I looked at Dukes of Hassard. All right, you got anything else to say about this movie, Brady? Yeah. Okay, cool. Say it. I mean, like, there's, uh, well, yeah. I mean, okay. Thing that I really want to shout out. I love this score. I love James Newton Howard's score for this. Uh, and you know, it's funny. It's not a perfect movie, but one thing I can say about it is it's a movie where and like Shyamalan has never ever gotten this lucky ever again. To, to even have one or two elements working well in a Shyamalan movie is a rarity at this point. Um, the Happening has no elements working in its favor. He, he should uh, he should make a movie called Rarity where like all that happens. <laughs> but but so like what what's really great is like the It'd shots be about are about a murder beautiful. at an organic produce store. Like shots, acting. Um, Rob interrupts Brady again. <laughs> all that shit. Uh, shot composition, it's all good. Uh, but this movie, uh, let's throw it into high company. It's nowhere near as good as this movie, The Social Network, but it's a score where I'm like, yes, that score like is such a good topper. Can we listen to like 
one of those score pieces. Just yeah, sure. How well? Why don't you just hum how it goes when he comes out of the pool? Oh, okay. Well, I already did, but okay, I'll do it again. Because uh, that you know that is, I know there are trickier shots. You know, I mentioned the one with the football player, and there's the one where he like turns the comic book around as a kid and it pans with him. But my favorite shot, just in terms of what it means to the story, is when he gets pulled out of that pool and slowly stands up. Because like that's that's the movie's theme in action. There, it's this is like the real life superhero, and and kind of like in Spider Man or Spider Man Two, it's like it's these kids, the people he protects that save him. So like the, the like we've talked a lot about the technique, but I'll just say like one sentence. There's a lot going on emotionally in this. It, it's a nice emotional journey, um, and you know, it, right down to the fact that like you feel Bruce Willis's sadness. And what's kind of cruel but cool at the same time is at the end, what happens is Willis's sadness gets taken away. He finds his purpose. Yeah, preach, Brady. And then the sadness gets instantly given back to him by learning what Jackson did and learning that uh, all that guilt, all these people who died are now on him. And so, like, but, like, that's cool to me. And it reminds me of another thing we should talk about. Um... (laughs) Uh, what I think is cool is this is the version of Superman that should exist. Because, fine, I get it. Superman's invincible. I know you're never going to change that except for the kryptonite, blah, blah. But uh, the one thing we never see Superman do, do is really get affected. You can hear everything. Um, here, tangent. Remember we watched that movie Camera Person? Dun, dun, dun. Oh, this is the, the orange man. This is the other part. Which also plays at the end when the big reveal happens. It's the yeah, sad but what's music. your tangent? Oh, what? What's your tangent? Oh, okay. So we saw Camera Person, this year's documentary together, last year's. And you had this moment where these people who had worked on, like, interviewing uh, Bosnian rape victims were talking about, well, like, how do you process it all? Like, if you're a person, it's your job, either a documentarian or Superman, it's your job to literally train your eye on the worst shit humanly possible. How does that not affect you? How does say Superman, this really powerful right now. <laughs> how is Superman going to work as cheery-ass Clark Kent when, like, he sees the very worst, worst things happen every single day? And that's what this movie gets right, is like, yeah, you're going to be a superhero, and that's going to give you some peace of mind because you're going to be doing what you need to do. But you're also... What Bruce Willis, I think, is in the end scared of is having to touch all those hands. It's having to see all that shit over and over and over again. Yeah, like having to realize his power. Like, even Batman, I don't feel like, gets so affected by the actual toll of seeing the death. Yeah, there's a thing about the character who he's just very frightened to even have a place. And he should... He well, wishes he should, to not, you know? You, if you literally, like... It's, it's, like, worse than being a public defender or a prosecutor. You are going to see, like, umpteen murders every day. Because that's your job. You're a superhero. And you're not going to stop all of them. Yeah, but it, I mean, like, also kind of being like a football player is, is kind of in some ways being a hero. And he walked away from it just to not be But that's the movie's arc is like, yeah. okay, I can't do that. Like, that's wrong. I'm always going to be a depressed sad sack if I do that. Right. But the final kind of bittersweet thing is like, yeah, but to do what you need to do, what you need to do if you're a superhero, you're always going to be sad. Yeah. You're going to see that shit. Well, I think uh, I, th- I think you've made excellent points, and that's a, a good place to leave the discussion for and now. What a score! What a and score! What a score! What a score!
It sounded really powerful when you were just talking about the movie with that. James in the background. He did. Uh, he was half of the uh, Dark Knight score, and parts of me wonder if he wasn't more pivotal than Hans Zimmer. Ah, yes. So, what are we doing next week? Ooh, I hadn't even thought about it. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go happy on this. I'm gonna go Spider Man Two. Off. Oh, I'm gonna go uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Uh, should we suggest another one? I th- yeah, you probably should. <laughs> you should. <laughs> Let's see. What uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is a fine movie. Oh, I'm I'm not talking shit on Bill and Ted. Uh, so Spider Man Two. It had Chabon. We don't have to go superhero. I mean, I kind of got our superhero jollies out. It's true. We got our jollies out. Um, I was saying Bill and Ted because I think they're going to do... Oh, yeah, that's right. I was talking with Chonk about that. Chonk, who's been a guest on this podcast back when we did... Ooh, I forget what it was, but he was a musical guest, and he also talked about the movie. Um, But uh, I was talking with him. I was saying, like, I swear to God, I know it. I know in the next two years they're going to fucking do a, a Bill and Ted reboot. And then, like, two weeks later, he sent me, like, announced today, Bill and Ted reboot. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, see, told you. You see what happens. Uh, Okay, I'm going to go with... uh, I don't know, seven. Ah, Real Monsters? (laughs) I'm going to go seven. Seven. Ooh, I haven't seen that. Oh, yeah? Uh, Then I'll throw out an addition to that 12 Monkeys, because I also haven't seen that. Oh, and okay. those are both kind of two sides of the same coin because they're both uh, they Brad have Pitt, Brad right? Pitt's face on them. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, which one are you going to stand by of your two choices, uh, or or se- one of mine? Seven. Okay, uh, you can well, go with seven. Yeah. All right. I can go twelve monkeys because I I do really want to see that. Okay. Uh, you want to shoot for it? Yeah. Shoot I'll for take it. odds. Okay. Okay. One, two, three. Even. Even. Okay. I don't think I've wo- have I ever won one of these shoot things i don't know i try to organize it so you won't (laughs) (laughs) okay this will be cool because i i think seven might connect in some interesting ways to what we just talked about all right everybody next week seven thank you so much for tuning in tuning in come on that's a fucking out who's still why do we still say that you don't actually have to turn a knob on the radio there aren't radio well i guess there are radio talk shows. okay if you're on a radio talk show you get to say tune in thank you for like taking a mouse and clicking on several links and going to our site www.carnivorousstudios.com where you can suggest a movie or listen to i think we're up to at least 70 episodes or something maybe not that many maybe more we're like 60 there. something i don't know we've done a shit ton of work people uh you've got listening for like weeks if you go to our site and listen to it. And there's also some other cool stuff up there, some music videos. There's a bunch of Brady and my band's uh, Carnivorous Couch live recordings. There's some poetry by me. There's a ton of uh, in-depth reviews that Brady's done of movies over the years. Uh, I think he's coming up on, what, 50? Uh, getting there. Yeah. So do, do, do go visit Carnivorous Studios. And uh, did we mention anybody? No, I had an argument with Ethan on Facebook. Ethan Pollock, theme song. (laughs) Carnivorous Couch, it happens once a week. It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep. It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak. Carnivorous Couch. 
with Brady and Rob. I don't have any time for your childish not acknowledging of my despondence.